0: Life is mainly froth and bubble, but two things stand in stone. Kindness in another's trouble and courage in your own.
1: Welcome to Career View Mirror, the automotive podcast that goes behind the scenes with key players in the industry looking back over their careers so far, sharing insights to help you with your own journey. I'm your host, Andy Fox. Anthony Robesco, listeners. Anthony is the Managing Director and Founder of EcoSmart Group in Melbourne, Australia. Since launching in 1991, EcoSmart Plumbing and Drainage has developed a strong reputation for consistent delivery of reliable, quality plumbing and drainage services. EcoSmart's strength is its highly skilled staff who are committed to the success of their clients' projects, backed by the highest quality procedures developed across thousands of successful jobs. As well as plumbing services, EcoSmart are builders and developers who pride themselves on their comprehensive understanding of volume building processes and are committed to growing their partners' businesses. Anthony's an entrepreneur with an incredible passion for nurturing and growing people. I've been working with Anthony and his team for a while now, and I was so struck by the way they operate that I asked him to join me to talk about his career journey and the business he's developed. Whilst Anthony is not from an automotive background, you won't be surprised to learn that when it comes to people topics, there are examples from his industry that are highly transferable to our world. Our conversation covers his early years growing up and his ambitions to become a professional cyclist, which ended abruptly and prematurely. We talk about the very tough early years of building the business and the point when he almost gave up. Anthony shares the focus on people, purpose and values that make EcoSmart what it is and make me very proud to introduce you to him and his approach. I look forward to hearing what resonates with you. If you enjoy listening to my guest career stories, please follow Career View Mirror in your podcast app. This episode of Career View Mirror is brought to you by the Aquila Academy. At the Academy, we turn individual development into a team sport. We bring together small groups of leaders from non-competing organisations to form their very own academy team. We build strong connection between team members and create a great environment for sharing and learning. We introduce the team to content that can help them tackle their current challenges and we hold them accountable to take the actions that they decide are their priorities. We say, we hold our team members' feet to the fire of their best intentions. We do this internationally with teams across the world. If you'd like to learn more about the Academy, go to www.aquilie.co.uk. Hello, Anthony, and welcome. And where are you coming to us from today?
0: Hey Andy. I'm coming from Melbourne, Victoria. It's, uh, it's cooler here, but um, we're, t- we're getting closer to winter.
1: Very nice. So a town, Melbourne, a city I've spent plenty of time in and absolutely love being there. I can picture you there. Where did it start for you, though? Where were you born and where did you grow up?
0: I was born locally in Werribee, just at the old Werribee Hospital, I guess. Did all my schooling here at Werribee and really haven't really uh, left town. I've, I've travelled a fair bit and I've experienced a, a, quite a bit. But my, my childhood and my adolescent and my work life
1: has all been local. And you come from Italian descent, don't you? So tell us how you came to be in Australia.
0: I, I did. So I was born here, but my parents um, immigrated out from Italy in the, in the early 50s with my two brothers. So I have um, two older brothers and I have one that's 18 years older than me and one that's 22 years older than me. So effectively, I had mum, dad and, um, and two brothers that were like parents as well.
1: Yeah, that's quite a big age gap. And what were your parents doing? What brought them over from Italy? Because that was a big move back in those days to to emigrate to Australia.
0: It was. I think just the opportunity out here. We had some relatives here that that had created new lives and opportunity. Um, uh, most of Europe was in a bad way after the war and and, and were still recovering. And I guess for my parents, it was um, an opportunity for a new life and probably as much to give um, to give it give us kids an opportunity
1: yeah i'm always curious i asked my guests what uh, sort of work their parents did because of uh, seeing what they might have had visibility of the type of jobs they had visibility of when they were growing up in your case there's your parents There's also you had older brothers uh who were working perhaps as well so what what did your parents do and what did your brothers do
0: yeah so my father was um my father was a carpenter um so he, uh, he was a carpenter over in Italy and, and pursued that when he came over to Australia. Mum, they both left school very early. So during that time there, they started their working lives around about seven or eight years old. Mum knitted socks for the soldiers at that age and, and dad worked on the farm with his family. But out here, dad pursued carpentry and became a, a home builder. And mum worked on the farms and then um, and then she worked in, in a clothing shop
1: making clothes. And what about your brothers? What did you see them do? yeah, so my brother
0: um, my older brother frank he he pursued engineering, so he was a he was a mechanical engineer he's he's now retired um, so my brothers they were they they were both out of home and settled when I was born um so Frank was an engineer, and my brother Orlando, who's eighteen years older than me, he was a plumber so and, and I didn't really know that until I was probably about ten, twelve, thirteen years old. You really don't pay attention to what your brothers are doing and, and they weren't living at home, so Um, It's not as if I was watching them work every day.
1: Yeah. Do you know, did your parents, were they happy with the move they'd made? Did they have any regrets about it or did they really embrace being in Australia?
0: No, they really embraced it. We lived in the family home uh, right from day one. So they were sponsored out by a relative and they lived in a shed in the south of Werribee, which is a market gardening region. But after a few years, dad had built our family home and they lived their whole life there. And I can remember mum and dad saying, we had a wonderful, wonderful neighborhood. And our neighbors, who I used to call Nana and Pop, actually, because I never had grandparents, they were so fair and treated my mum and dad with so much dignity, even though they couldn't speak the language. And I remember dad saying, you know, that the neighbors were just the most wonderful people. And, and they really were. They treated me like a son. Actually, Mrs. Taylor, who I called Nan, she taught me how to speak English. So I That's couldn't sorry. speak English until
1: Nan taught me. So it sounds like you had a very, Basic beginning, you said a uh, shed, they lived in a shed.
0: Was yeah, I, I didn't, I was, I was fortunate that I was born into the home, but certainly right. in the early days, yeah, they did it hard. They were ferocious workers out of necessity. So, my brothers have told me these stories. Mum and dad were probably always too humble to tell you what they did, but I remember my brother Frank telling me that my dad would be up at four and he'd go out and work on the fields and he'd come back in at about 5 30 and wake mum up and help get the, the two brothers ready. One was four, one was eight. Frank would go off to school and mum would carry Orlando out to the, or take out to the paddocks and he would spend the day in the paddock with mum where mum would um, pick beans and peas and, and work on market gardens. Then dad would ride his bike home, which was about probably 20 kilometres back to the farm at night, and he'd help mum bring all the sacks out to the road, which is um, how they were all loaded. And then they'd go home and cook dinner and, um, and the next day would start. So, you know, they probably worked 16 hours a day seven days a week for many, many years.
1: Yeah, with really hard physical work. And maybe, because I know, uh, you know, we're going to talk about your story and there's there's definitely a very strong work ethic there. So maybe we're seeing the beginnings of, of that in your upbringing there. What was, uh, tell us a little bit about school, Anthony. What do you remember of it? What kind of <laughs> student were you?
0: Um, yeah, probably a little bit too cheeky. It was, um, my parents were, were nearly 50 when they had me. So the, the journey was quite difficult for both both parties, both my mum and dad and myself. Um, they didn't have a lot of tolerance, certainly no patience, and uh, and I, I was certainly probably had a little bit more energy than what they'd hoped for. School was a challenge. I probably tried to not go as often as I could. Spent a lot of time riding to school and getting sidetracked and ending, ending up down the river on my BMX. And So I, I missed a fair few days at school when I was in primary school. Mum and dad were probably hoping I'd settle a- a little bit, which didn't happen. So I was, uh, I was put into a boarding school for a while. I was about 12 or 13 then, but it didn't last a whole lot. I only lasted there three days and <laughs> I found myself.
1: <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I don't know, a few years or something. But... No, no, no. It was, um, I, didn't want, I didn't want
0: to go to boarding school, obviously. I didn't want to go to school. And I didn't mind school. It's just that I had other things to do. So I was really keen on sport and, and I love my bicycles. And Mum and Dad said, if you go to school, we'll buy you a track bike so I could ride on the velodrome. And I was happy to go to boarding school, but the only conditions that I'd put on it was that I had a coach that I'd met not a whole lot longer before. His name was Harry, most influential person in my life. And Harry was meant to pick me up on a Friday, take me to race on Saturday, bring me back home, and take me back to school for Monday morning, where I'd spend the week. And then I had to be able to ride my bike a couple of nights a week to train after school. And the first night, we boarded. We we did our school work, and then we came out, and we got a snack. And it was a Christian Brothers boarding college, and then we had to pray, and we got our dinner, homework, and bed. So I, so I missed out on my ride, and then the next day, the same thing happened, and then the next day, the same thing happened again. I hadn't ridden for three days, and kind of wasn't going the way I wanted it. So um, so I found myself at home the next day, and I didn't go back.
1: Right, right, because cycling was that important to you. Um, i I just couldn't see past anything else like i I couldn't think of anything but how did you go from being the 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 kid who on his way to school you know would go off on your bmx to actually having a cycling coach and going to the velodrome because you know lots of kids have bikes very few kids go to a velodrome so how come you ended up having a coach and going to the velodrome
0: yeah and, and that was um one of my greatest blessings so my neighbours across the road were cyclists, and they weren't, weren't much older than me, but they might have been five or ten years older than me, and and I would see them go out for rides, and I was only 12, 13 years old, and um, I never had a suitable bike to do that, but I would see them go training and go for rides, and I, I followed one of them down to a race on a Sunday morning, and and I just watched, and I met, that's where I met my coach and, and a long, long-standing friend. Uh, my coach's name was Harry Jones, and, and his best friend, who's actually been a lifelong friend of myself and my family, is Frank Zanatta. So I, I was introduced to them and I, and I watched the race and then I rode home and I went back the next week, but my parents weren't happy that I went there because it was actually a professional cycling club and it was um, I was only a kid. I was 12, 13, and the club was most – it was an adult club and after the race there was plenty of beer drinking and, you know, it wasn't, probably wasn't an environment for a 13-year-old. So I told um, – I went the next weekend and I, and I said to Harry and Frank, I said, look, I'm not allowed back. But I wasn't allowed back the second time, but I snuck there, and um, and then I told him, look, I'd, I'm going to have trouble getting here every weekend because my dad will wring my neck if he catches me. So Harry and Frank put me in the back of their car on the way home and, and brought me home and introduced themselves to my parents, and they forged one of the strongest relationships my parents had in Australia, and that's where I got to meet Harry. And Harry was in his 60s when I met him as well. So Harry was what, what I would have considered. He, he was relatively old. I was 13. He was probably mid-60s, so
1: there was quite a gap between us. Mm. So he recognized. Sounds like he recognized this was an opportunity for you, and he didn't want you to be denied it because of a of a fear that your parents might have had about it leading you astray. Sort of. thing.
0: Yeah. Looking back, that that visit to the race, meeting Harry, it's probably the greatest directional change that anybody could ever uh, have come across. It was. It's been an amazing journey, and all thanks to that one meeting.
1: Let's. In a moment, we'll talk about. I'm going to ask you about you know what happened for you with cycling and how far you took it before that though we were talking once and you told me a story about your mum and uh, I just want to ask you to share that because it's indicative of your parents really cared about the values that you were brought up with and I remember you telling me a story about your mum and how she would take you to pick the others up from the school bus and she'd give you a bag of lollies or sweets as we call them over here can you just share that with us
0: yeah, that's one story that I've only been able to tell probably in the last five years. It was um, it's it's the probably the single biggest lesson that I've ever been privileged to to be part of. But in a nutshell, mum and dad were were, were pretty hard as well. Like, um, uh, 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 mum had broken my my arm with a rolling pin. I'd, I'd cut plenty of whack. So the, the Europeans aren't scared to hit, and they and they hit hard. But when it came to empathy and compassion, they're they're pretty hard to beat like that also. So. As a four-year-old, you're off to the bus to the bus stop. And, and we lived right down the end of our, of our bus stop. So we could see the bus stop and the kids at the at the bus stop before we left home. And mum would hand me a bag of lollies or sweets as you call them. And when I got to the bus stop, I had to share them all out. And inevitably, two or three mornings a week, I would miss out on a lolly. And it, it, it didn't, didn't didn't really occur to me. I never thought about it, but this story only came to light probably 10 years ago, is, um, I spent a lot of time with my parents as they got older because, um, not not because, but as I got older, I spent a lot of time with them and and, and and we were a big part of their caregiving. And I spent a lot of time with mum talking about the past and we happened to mention that story. And I said, how the hell did I keep missing out? And and she laughed and looked at me and she said, didn't you realise what I was doing? And, um, and I had no idea what she was talking about. And she said, well, I would count the kids at the bus stop and I would take out enough lolly so that you missed out a couple of times a week. And and I looked at her and I said, but I was four years old. Why would you do that? And she said, well, <laughs> yeah, it was a really harsh lesson. I mean, and actually, I think that, and I was thinking about it now. I mean, I'm, I'm a lot more comfortable with it. But look, the moral of the story is you don't take anything until everybody else is looked after. So, you know, her rationale was you learn to give and not expect or, or, or you don't expect anything back in return.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for sharing it. And it does make me chuckle. I don't know why. It's just so, it's such a tough story, but it's just, a, I can just picture this four-year-old, you sort of puzzled why you're missing out occasionally on the yeah, on the lollies. So yeah. thanks for sharing. And Will, you know, we work together now. We've worked together for a few months and I've seen how you are with your team and i completely understand that you know i can you you model that behavior of looking after the people who are around you so we'll we'll talk a bit bit about that i'm sure but i just wanted to go there while we were still while you're still that age and then so you met harry and chance so it's the neighbors across the road were into cycling that drew you, you followed them that drew you into the world you might have missed out you might have missed out because on the face of it your parents thought this isn't a place we want a youngster hanging out but harry had the goodness to drive you home and introduce himself and uh that allowed you then to to carry on going and tell us a little bit about your time then as a cyclist
0: yeah well okay so um i'll start with my first training session so i was always a good sports person so i ran state level as a school kid i was i was lucky to be relatively natural at endurance sports so but as a cyclist I remember my first training session with Harry I was so excited 13 years old so I just thought life just could not possibly be any better and as much as I wanted to ride my bike our first training session was learning a poem and Harry wouldn't let me ride my bike until I learned this poem and it took me two blasted sessions to to memorize it and I I ended up having to ride it on my on my headstead which is the, the piece that connects your handlebars and And I put it on some paper and and sticky taped it to my headstand because if I couldn't remember it, he wouldn't let me ride my bike. And that poem has become my gospel and something that I revert back to and live by to this day.
1: What is it? What was the poem? The
0: poem's called Froth and Bubble, and it's um, it's 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 only four lines. So Harry was an atheist and he didn't he didn't believe in religion, but I've I've never ever come across a, a more Christian person. So the poem is. Life is mainly froth and bubble, but two things stand in stone. Kindness in another's trouble and courage in your own. And he wouldn't let me ride my bike until I, obviously you can tell I know the palm backwards, and and I had to learn that before I could ride.
1: He was not just interested in developing you as a cyclist, it sounds like. He was taking you under his wing, and this was going to be a, a very rounded coaching experience and it reminds me um I don't know if you've seen the karate kid movies uh, from the 80s Anthony the guy just wants to learn karate and his coach Mr Miyagi I think is has him washing the car and wax on and wax off and all this stuff he has to learn before he's allowed to go near uh, any karate moves so it's uh
0: very very similar Harry was um seeing where I am now Harry wasn't training me how to ride a bike. He was training me how to learn and how to treat others.
1: I love that. How to learn, how to treat others. I w- I recently read uh, Legacy, the book about the All Blacks, uh, and I've it. Um, there's a line in there about oh, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna butcher this, but it's something along the lines of, you know, great people or great humans make great All Blacks. So first of all, start building great people, and then then work on the, uh, the rugby stuff. Yeah, so, you did right. Um, you said that was life-changing, getting into that environment. Your first training session was learning a poem rather than getting on the bike. What happened from there?
0: Um, I, I was, actually, I was fortunate within six months I'd, I'd won a state title. I wasn't fortunate. We'd worked towards it. Harry was very strategic. Um, and Harry's motto was the least amount of the right training possible.
1: Right, that was his motto, the least amount of the right training possible.
0: And that was more so that, as a thirteen year old, you weren't taxing your body overly. It, it, Harry was um because I, I was racing against kids who were really pushed hard by their parents. Harry was the opposite. Harry knew it was a long game, and he was trying to uh, to get me to the older ranks in in perfect condition to to take on a new life. So he wasn't interested in short interested in short-term success at all.
1: Right. So we do a lot of seven habits work together, Anthony. And that just makes me think of the PPC balance. You don't kill the goose. He, he saw this as a long game. Don't burn you out as a 13 year old when the goal is to get you to the upper age groups.
0: Yeah, very, very much so. And, and from then it progressed pretty quickly. Like I think I was, um, I'd won about seven or eight state titles, was at national level. And then at 18, was probably, I'd won a national title. And I was fortunate to spend some time at our AIS, which is the Australian Institute of Sport, which is probably was the highest level for us at the time. That was probably um, where you went to go onto national selection. But my dream was always to ride professionally, and the AIS was an was an amateur organisation because at that time when I was racing, professionals couldn't ride in the Olympics. And but I was never interested in in the Olympics. I always wanted to be a European professional, just like we see today, the the Tour de France kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. So, what was the title that you won? What was your your sort of biggest achievement?
0: Um, oh God, uh, probably the um, I'd won some really nice races, but I guess if you're looking at titles, it was probably the under twenty three Australian Road Champion when I was eighteen. So, I was probably a few years ahead of uh, like I had another three or four years in that category.
1: But you set your heart on becoming a professional cyclist and 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 doing that in Europe.
0: Absolutely, like I, to tell you the truth, like I wanted to go overseas when I was sixteen, and and I. I Told my parents that I was going over, and I actually had an amateur team that I could go to. But my dad said to me, "Look, you can go, but you can't come back and live here." And I, I was just toying. I didn't, I didn't have the courage. And my brother Orlando, who was the plumber, he said to me, "Listen, you turd, come and work with me, and I will, um, you know, I'll, I'll work in with you and give you time off to train, and at least you can stay living at home." And that's the only reason why I became a plumber is so I could get as much time off as I could to train. I had no interest in plumbing at all.
1: Right. So were, were you still thinking to go overseas? Was the idea that you'd work with Orlando, train, and ultimately go overseas at some point?
0: Absolutely. So then when I started my apprenticeship um, – I, and I looked up to my brothers. So my brothers co-parented me, and, and I still do. So I live with them as much as I live with my parents. So I'd either be with one brother and their family – like. Uh, my nieces and nephews are only a few years younger than me, so I spent a lot of time living with my brothers, and and still very very close to them. Like they effectively, I had three sets of parents. Um, and and the intention was to work with my brother, do my apprenticeship, get as much time off the train as I could, which he was fantastic with. And then, I mean, within a week of finishing my apprenticeship, I was overseas.
1: Right, and where where did you go overseas? Um,
0: yeah, I, I live in the in the. Um, in the middle of Italy, in the region of um, Le Marche, I raced for an Italian team there. So I went over there when I was tw- I just turned 20. And and that was great. It was a wonderful, wonderful life. And I had amazing opportunities. I had a fantastic team, but I got hurt and, and things changed pretty quickly.
1: Is that something we can talk about?
0: Yeah. Look, it's probably the best thing that happened to me, if I'm going to be honest. In, in a nutshell, what happened, we were on a starting line ready to start a race. And I was at the back of the bunch and we were just standing over our bikes, listening to instruction. And I heard people yelling, and people scattering, and, and I just had my head down. But a drunk driver just drove straight over the top of us, and we were hurt pretty badly. And I saw I recovered from it, and I was able to race again. But I was, I was never the same. I, I think I've had probably ten surgeries on my back and hips since. So um, I was only it was thirty years ago. It was more than thirty plus years ago for me. But I, I was hurt to the point where I was never going to be a professional.
1: And up until that point, it had been tracking well wow. from
0: a oh, very. point of view
1: yeah yeah
0: look you can never you can never presume or, or assume where you may have or what you may have reached but I was confident that I could have made a living out of it um but um I have no regrets I actually had surgery I came home they wanted to operate when I was overseas but I thought well if I'm going to have a back surgery at 20 I want to come home and have it done because my season was done so I had surgery in September here, and then I recovered and I was with my partner at the time, wife now Sue. We've been together since we were seventeen. My brother had a caravan up at the Otway Ranges, so I went up there to do some training. And the first time I got on the bike and did a long ride, I had the my leg went to sleep again. So I came back and I bought a phone card at, at the milk bar because there was no mobile phones then, although I very new. And I rang the team in Italy and I said, "Look, I'm I'm done. I'm finished." And they said, no, look, we'll have someone there on Wednesday to, to bring you back. So they were going to fly someone out from Italy that, that day to come and pick me up and take me back because they thought they could operate over there for the second time. And I said, look, don't come. I'm not coming. I'm, I'm done. And then we, um, I, I, I packed my bike up and I went home and that's it. I hung it up. And within four or five days later, I started a plumbing business.
1: You said you've got no regrets now, Anthony. How was it at the time,
0: though? I'm a realist. I don't need a lot of time. I feel I have a really good ability to not kid myself. And to be elite, you need to be physically perfect. And I was never going to be. So if I couldn't have it all, I didn't want any of it.
1: If you couldn't have it all, if you couldn't be elite, you didn't want any of it. Uh, And then so five days after that phone call, you were working as a plumber.
0: Well, I came home the next day and then I, I found an auction house the day after that and I bought an old panel van It took me two days to get it registered and roadworthy and some signs put on the door. And I think by the Friday, so I came home on the Sunday, and by the next Friday I was out knocking on doors looking for work as a as a plumber. All
1: right, you'd done your apprenticeship before you went to Italy, of course. So you had had. that. And you just set out with your van and started looking for jobs. How did you get those first jobs?
0: I knocked on doors. I, I I went round to um I drove around to display homes and, uh, and I'd drive around to site and you'd see a sign on a fence and I'd ring the builder and um, I just drove around and asked. I, I subcontracted to a friend of mine. We went to trade school together and his name was Shane and Shane was 20 years older than me. So he was, he was in his mid-30s when he started his apprenticeship and he had, a, he had three kids. And Shane started his own business before I did. So I worked for Shane two days a week, and I wouldn't do any more because I allowed those other three days for myself to drive around and look for work. So as much as I could make a living working for Shane quite comfortably, I knew if I didn't dedicate the time, uh, even though I wasn't making a cent, if I didn't dedicate the time to growing my own business, I never would have got going.
1: So that's a choice you took that not everybody would take, Anthony. Already there you were thinking – you could have just worked five days a week for Shane, but you you recognise that that wouldn't allow you to build your own business. So wh- where did that come from, do you think, that recognition that the, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it and I'm going to build a business?
0: I, I guess that's probably subconscious conditioning from my parents. Um, my, my father was self-employed. My brother was self-employed. It was tough times back then because we'd gone through the 88 GFC, which I think the whole world went through. Um, now, that didn't affect me because I was effectively still a kid riding my bike, but to start a business in 1991, it was pretty tough times. It certainly was here in Australia. It, it just didn't occur to me to do it any other way. I, 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 honestly, I'm, I'm probably really lucky that um, I, I operate a lot of time with blinkers on and rarely see – I don't really see it, but I refuse to let, I, I guess, potential defeat affect my decision.
1: This something about being able to get to the level that you got to in cycling that any guests who've got to a a national level in in sport tend to really be able to dig deep and knuckle down and and get focused so that's makes a lot of sense i think there's a paradigm there that you didn't start plumbing you started a plumbing business that's there was from day one there was that Without even maybe thinking about it, as you say subconsciously, you were you were starting a business, you weren't starting a job.
0: Yes, but gee whiz, the first 15 years were tough and and that probably comes down to not having any good mentorship. Um, it comes down to not knowing where to ask for support and, and I wasn't mismanaging it because the business has always been a little rocket ship, but I suffered and and put the family through a hell of a lot of stress because of the way I went about it so yeah I, I started a business but I really didn't I didn't start building a business till I was in my mid-30s
1: so how long in terms of yeah what's the time frame there, there yeah, no, pr- probably
0: probably yeah about 13 years so I was always very good at well I shouldn't say that but you know I, I was quite capable at whatever I tackled and 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 tried to do so plumbing was no different to sport for me so in the early days I didn't remember this, but we had someone that I'd worked with came into work 10 years ago and he was recounting a story how I ran out of the house that I was working on and I was only 23, 24 years old and I ran to my to my van and, and I started jotting down in, in a diary and and I was all excited and he asked me what I was doing. Well, apparently what I'd done, I'd, I'd achieve a new personal best in, in how quick I could install a toilet. And I would record. <laughs> <laughs> That shows
1: a mindset,
0: doesn't it? So I would record what process I used and what sequence I used and what drill bit I used. I'm not particularly passionate about plumbing and, and never have been, but but I'm really passionate about improving. And for me, it's just been one, one big game where I would do something and then look to change it up and see how I could do it differently or better. And it hasn't stopped to this day. Each day I go to work and sometimes chuckle at what I'm trying to, to achieve in, in such a minor way.
1: Oh, there's so much in so much I want to talk about in what you've just said, Anthony. So there's a book called Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed, and he talks about he he spent some time with um, one of the cycling teams, the Sky Cycling Team, I think it is, and they talk about marginal gains so just these tiny little improvements that they made to you know maybe the type of fabric of the jerseys (laughs) and the the sequence of things were they doing that were you exposed to that when you were cyclist or is that No. So that's not something that's... um, Sorry, listeners, you can't see. Anthony shook his head then and I realise you can't see that. But uh, no, so you weren't exposed to that. I didn't think that that would have been going on at that time. But it sounds like you've taken that approach anyway. You were taking it to your plumbing. You were really focused and it would have been anything you did. It would have been done in the same way because you get more pleasure and satisfaction out of improvement and self-improvement and beating personal bests and things. So these incremental gains, it sounds like... You know, it's like the Red Bull pit stop. You're you're applying that to plumbing. You know, how can we can we change this toilet or whatever it is? Yeah, you know, as quickly. It, as-
0: it's interesting you mentioned black box thinking because we had someone at work that, that's doing a little bit of work with us, and he looked at me and he came. He comes from a training background, um, and he, he was a trainer at Boeing and and places like that in the in the aircraft industry. And he looked at me and he said, "You're a real black box business," and I didn't know what he meant. But, but i guess from an early early age when something would go wrong i would just stop and the first thing i'd ask myself is how did that happen and the next question i'd ask myself is how does that never happen again and and vice versa if something good happens i ask myself what caused that outcome and how do i find a a way to mass produce it
1: yeah No, it's fascinating to hear you share that and, you know, what you were living, the behavior you were naturally drawn towards, the way you wanted to do your job, you know, being written about in books uh, now like Black Box Thinking or others. Um, So I'm not sure I've got myself a little bit lost now. So we're in that first 13-year period where you said it was really hard, that bit, There obviously elements of what was going to make you successful you were already living those and behaving like that but why what changed after 13 years what did you start doing differently that helped you yeah
0: i I probably came close to a breakdown where because like i would work one thing that that cycling taught me is that effectively i used to just outlast people I, i trained hard but you know our training requirements when we were, when I was eighteen at the institute was like eleven hundred kilometers a week on the bike, plus external training like gym work. So you adopted this incredible work ethic, but you learned to believe in yourself that you could outlast and outdo anybody. And if somebody was going to be better than you, they sure as hell earned it. So you you got to trust yourself and back yourself that you could probably carry out any task, and that flowed into my work. So became a detriment towards the end and nearly cracked me. But I would go out to work at 4, 4.30 in the morning. Then I would come back and I had about um, three employees at the stage. So I'd come back about 7 o'clock, grab one. I'd, I'd take one of them with me and the other two would go off on their own and then I'd work and then I'd come back and drop him off at 5, 6 o'clock and I'd have dinner. Then I could, you know, often I would go back out to work till you know midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. And it's not because I was greedy or hungry. Just had so much work, but didn't couldn't manage it. I was only early twenties, and I just couldn't manage it. I couldn't manage the the coordination and the and the scheduling, and and then you got to do all the paperwork after work, and probably working eighty hours a week. And and Sue, we've been together since we were seventeen, eighteen. So, you know, Sue was doing crazy hours with me as well. And I got to mid thirties, and I was just cooked. I was I was really in a bad way, and and, and I actually wanted to get out of the, out of plumbing altogether, and I wanted to sell the business, but um. It wasn't very sellable because it was all me. So um I I just needed a break from it at the at the time, I guess.
1: So you didn't sell the business. What happened instead?
0: Yeah, so I had a good look at myself and some mutual friend of ours, Alan Crooks, who happens to be my neighbor. And I would be out and where I worked out of at the time was just because we live on a rather been a, a large blocks and my my workspace was very near to where Alan is and and I would see him Every morning, as calm as can be. Like I've never met anybody more calm than Alan. And yet, I'd be like a cat on a barbecue. I, I spent the previous ten years like being sick every morning before I went to work as well. So I was that worked up that that I would I would vomit every morning but as soon as my feet hit the ground. So I was in a I was in a pretty bad way at times. Um, and then I'd come out and see Alan. who was just operating like he's uh, like he's in a glider. Everything was so smooth and calm. And and I just I thought to myself one day. I'm going to be like him and I just decided that work will never rule me again and and I just it was just like a decision almost like I've I've, I've, I've never been a drinker I've never had an addiction that I've had to give up but I almost had to just blank my current mindset out and just commit to never ever putting myself in that position again and and I haven't.
1: Wow you were able to do that like flicking a switch?
0: I was just so embarrassed at how I was operating like I'd, I'd come from a place where I was pretty good at anything I touched and although I was very good at I was very good at the at the manual side of of the business. I was absolutely terrible in managing the emotional side of it. And I and I just I just just committed to to not having the business rule my life ever again.
1: So how did you you recognise that that was the challenge, and you saw a different way of being, you know, Alan, modelling a different way of behaving. I'm still struggling Anthony to think how you would because that was to be being sick every morning for 10 years that's a pretty serious kind of level of stress that you've got going on there so how did you what did you do I mean the next day when you woke up and you thought right well I'm not gonna let it do that to me I'm not going to think like that any anymore what did you, how did you behave differently? What did you, you know, how did that show up?
0: Yeah, well, I, well, I wanted to sell the business and I moaned and groaned for so long that Sue said to me, either shut up or sell the bloody thing. Like, stop stop moaning. So I looked at the business and I thought, you know, when you retire, you don't just pull a roller shutter down on an investment property or on something you spent your life building. And I was effectively going to walk away with so much hard work with no legacy, with no, creating no opportunity for anybody else, um, virtually failing uh, apart from financially. Like financially, it was the, the tour's been a little rocket ship, but effectively failing in every other way. Um, and I had to change a lot of things I did. Like I struggled to keep staff, and not because I treated them badly. I don't think I've ever treated anyone badly, but I used to just grind them into the ground because for me, success on a bike was just outworking everybody. And I remember being on site one day, and it was. It was high forty degrees. It was in the we were in the mid forties, and we're on an estate, and I could see people. It was ten, ten, eleven o'clock in the morning, and all the trade, tradesmen were leaving site, going home because it was scorching hot. And it got so hot that I couldn't pick up the tools, so I got a bucket of water and carried my tools in a bucket of water, and I wouldn't go home until I was the last one left on the uh, on on the estate. So, and, and I had to change those things. I had to become a little bit more reasonable because I would expect that of people that work for me, and it, it's just not. It was ridiculous, and it was unfair. So I I needed a complete mindset shift in what I expected of people and how I treated people. Yeah. So I just I had some really really good people. They were young kids at the time, and then I I got them more involved in the business, and they were super. they They were super employees, and to this day they're still with me as shareholders now. So you know that trauma probably brought about a complete rethink on how I was to go forward, and and I knew I didn't want to do it on my own anymore.
1: Right. So I'm thinking Sue had some influence here saying either sell it or sort it out, but this carrying on as it is isn't sustainable.
0: It just needed a complete shift. Like there was one time there, Andy, I was going I was going pretty terribly for th- about three months, and I said to Sue, oh, gee, I'm stressed. I might have been probably late 20, 30 years old. And I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm really stressed. And I ended up collapsing in so-called an ambulance. And I went to hospital and I had pneumonia. And that was great because I, I thought it was stress, but pneumonia is something you take a few pills and off you go again. But I remember I, was, um, I had a, a drip in and it was, it was early in the morning. And I said to the doctor, when am I going? And he, he looked at me and he said, you'll be here for a few days, buddy. And I said, I can't. I've got appliances tomorrow, which for us is the last stage of handing a house over. And I said, look, you're gonna to have to unhook me. I'll come back after I finish, but I can't let I can't let the owners down. And um and he unhooked me and I went off and did my job. So <laughs> so and that came from a, that came from my, my learnings on a bike. Like you, you just have to just have to be the last one standing.
1: Yeah, can't let the customers down. So then you had the shift and you started to look at the young people in your business and you were fortunate. I say fortunate, I'm thinking you'd probably attracted some really good people into the business and you recognised that at the time and gave them more responsibility. Yeah, is that what happened?
0: Uh, yes, I did. Um, it, the, the way this, the way our share plan came about, and it's it's a purpose-built share plan, so I remember going to my uh, accountant, who's a, a great personal friend, and, and I said to him, look, I've got a problem with this kid. And Jace had finished his apprenticeship at that stage and um, Ari, my accountant, said, well, what what's the problem? Just... Just pay him more. And I said, I said, no, this kid, this kid gives you his soul. And I said, that's not right. Like, we all expect hard work, but this kid, this kid just, he, he, he just gives you his soul. And I said, we have to come up with a plan where he can be in charge of his own destiny. And that's how our share plan was born. And everybody involved in our share plan has earned it. Sue and I consider them like our kids. So they're, they're all a bit younger. They're probably 20 years younger than Sue and I, but they're like our children
1: just such a powerful uh, story that anthony say a little bit please about the nature of the business the number of people you've got and what you're doing and the type of work so that people can get an idea of what it is that you're doing
0: yeah so we're we're volume plumbers so we we predominantly most of our work is on new homes so uh, volume builders they sell through display homes and we're contracted to do the plumbing work so we'll do right from the very beginning, from the drainage, right to the, the very end when the keys are handed over. There's about 55 of us in the business. We could probably double that in a click of a finger, but we're very conservative in our growth and we always have been. Like, again, our, our growth is a little bit like training on a bicycle for us. Like it, it has to be measured and has to be done properly and slowly. COVID has really challenged us, like many other businesses, with retention and people looking for change from industry to industry. But effectively, there's about 55 of us, and we work on new homes. and And the key players are Jason, Luke, Jay, who are shareholders with me. They they started off as first year apprentices. Uh, myself, Sue, and we have a uh, Donna. We, we have an, I, I could name 55 people. It's a most incredible team.
1: Yeah, yeah. And can you put some numbers behind it? Only I'm not prying, but that you're comfortable to share to give people an idea of the the success of the business.
0: As in the the volume we do, or whatever you're
1: or, comfortable to share, like turnover, or um
0: yeah, no, no, that's it. I'm okay with all of it. But We do about a thousand homes a year, so we probably we can do up to twenty new homes a week from start to finish. We turn over. There's a couple of parts of the business. Is that the business can turn over anywhere in between ten and fifteen million, depending on the year. Um, so it's, it's certainly by no means a big business. We're, we're only a little blink of a business in in relation to to big business, but it's a great business.
1: You said it's a rocket ship and you got the other side to the business as well. Yeah. Yeah. The other, the
0: other, the other side of the business is we just passively, we, we developed commercial property and I've been doing that. My first project was when I was 23 years old and that was to Bridgestone. I actually pre-leased and built a building for Bridgestone Tire Centre. And that was only brought about because Sue and i had purchased a rental property and the tenants trashed it. And I was so heartbroken that I got the agent to sell it within a week. I didn't care what I got. I just didn't, Sue and I had repaired this house after work at night, working till midnight. And we were only young. We were maybe 23 years old. And we had a tenant in there that trashed it. And And I vowed I'd never, I'd never buy another residential property. So I went and bought effectively a paddock in the middle of nowhere. And that kicked us off. But although it was a paddock, it was only two ways out of our town at the time. And one of them was going to be past my paddock. So I knew that in time, everyone would be going past. So at 23, I was Pretty fortunate to have the foresight to to buy that and we'd mortgaged everything we had. At the time, we bought that and we could have probably purchased two houses or three homes. And, and, I, and I put it towards an industrial block of land, which caused a hell of a stir at home because I was effectively almost kicked out of the will. So my parents are very, very conservative, old school bricks and mortar kind of people. So they weren't really happy with me when I did that.
1: It's really interesting for me listening to that, Anthony, and thinking, so your parents were entrepreneurial and and they you know your father always worked for himself and that's where you think you had this you know deep-rooted understanding that's what you would do when you started plumbing you were going to start a business and yet there was a level of risk they weren't comfortable with and you had a, a very i think a very young age 23 already stretched beyond what they were comfortable with by buying that industrial piece of land
0: again again from sport you've got to you've got to learn to back yourself cuz if you don't back yourself as a sports person stay home inevitably many times during the course of an event if you're not backing yourself you're just wasting fuel getting to the event <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> Yeah. And, and really, you've got to back yourself when no one else does. So, you know, if, if you're going to be a good sports person, can't always be skiing downhill. Like, you know, sometimes it's tough and you've got to, you've got to push uphill and um, pretty simple formula. And, and, and I'm really I'm really fortunate that I'm a very simplistic person and I don't complicate things too much. If it tastes good, I eat it. If it feels good, I do it. If it hurts, I don't. So not oh, real hard. That's <laughs>
1: wonderful. That is wonderful. <laughs> There's somebody else who's been backing you the whole way in this story. And that's Sue. Yeah, it was her her mortgage as well. It was her her life that was being put at risk. Just say a little bit about how that was at the time when you were both in your early 20s. Has it always been that kind of, has she shared your risk appetite or your simplicity of how to look at things? Um,
0: no, not really. But no, in a, in a nutshell, no. And I'm sure I've terrified her at times with, with my ideas and thoughts, but I just could not. And I don't know of any other couple, and we all got lots of friends. I don't know of any other people I know that's had the support of their partner like I have like it's like sue sue's been with me till midnight sweeping and cleaning and building um as well as raising our three kids. so you know um yeah, the ideas might probably pop out of my head first, but Sue gets left with um with all with all the work on how we're gonna make it all fit in incredible support like yeah, I just, there's no chance in the world we could be anywhere near where we are without um, without Sue's stability and just steadfast um, commitment to to sticking to the course.
1: You had this change. You noticed the youngsters in the business. You put the share plan in place and the way you described that and your motivation for doing that was, was wonderful to hear, Anthony. And I have the, you know, the privilege of, working with you and your team and seeing these people who you talk about and seeing you in your leadership role with them, which is just absolutely wonderful to watch and to to witness and to see how you you care about them. And, you know, when you talk about the 55 people in the business and it being a family and and you've got some family members in there and then the whole business is a family. Um, I can absolutely, it's not my place to vouch for it, but I mean, my goodness, I've sat in your team and I know how it feels and I know what a great atmosphere it is and and how you really do uh, live these uh, values. So was it what happened once you put that share plan in place once you started to look at your business differently and and realize you were not going to it wasn't going to be sustainable unless you looked at it differently what other th- things happened after that and and how did it go from that point to being the business that it is now
0: slowly we i guess our greatest strength is we're almost german like where we do not launch unless it's perfect but it's also our biggest weakness So we'll have competition launch well ahead of us. We're ultra conservative and we're really trying to make that shift to getting things on the ground and then tweaking as we go. But by nature, I hate to let anything go unless it's perfect. Um, And we know that's not good for business. We know that's not good for anything. But I guess our success is built on, really, do we we deliver a product that's not very fit for purpose or, or probably nearly as good as you can get? I guess, how did we get there? There's an endless pursuit for improvement. And, you know, like my my kids are heavily involved in the business and they've been, two of them work in the business, but all three of them have been fully exposed to the accounting side of it, to the strategy side of it from an early, early age. We have this great opportunity to to teach our kids and what better way to do it to actually let them see how a, a business runs from the inside. So, and our kids have been heavily involved with the workings of the business from very young.
1: Yeah. So you brought the kids in, you've shown them everything, you've had transparency there, you've treated it as a learning journey, a learning opportunity for them. You've developed gradually. You're very mindful that you probably ought to dial down the perfectionism, if you like, that having not wanting to release things that aren't perfect is maybe not ideal in the environment, but I imagine quite difficult to to break away from. Is there... A moment a, a deal an event that happened during the co- company's life that was a game changer for you where all of a sudden you, when looking back you think that's where we really stepped up or it has it always been this grinding away incremental improvement
0: yeah it has been predominantly the grind but i i guess what's happened probably from the last five years there's so much learning there's so much learning there's so much, learning, there's so much on offer there's so much to be taken from having a mentor, and and that's I guess one of the problems or one of the downfalls of being completely self-taught and not knowing where to source information or help. You don't know what's available to you. But I guess our biggest growth has been probably the last five years where we have no desire to be to be big, but we really want to be great. And I think Alan Crooks could see that. And and i you know Alan uh, over the fence. We we talk we talk very often. And Alan could see this desire to be the very best. So there's a lot to make up the best, though. So um, another mutual friend of ours, Adrian Gardner, is doing a little bit of work with us as well. And, and he walked into work, and, and obviously we're plumbers and, and, and we're called Eco Smart Plumbing. And he said to me, It needs a catch cry. And I said, What do you mean? He said, uh, Eco Smart, more than plumbing. And I said, What do you mean? And he said, Well, look at what you do here. Plumbing is only like almost a sideshow. And it is, plumbing is probably, The plumbing services are a byproduct of how we think about our our people at work. And and, I mean, I guess the people we work for probably wouldn't like to hear this, but our delivery of plumbing comes a complete second or third to what we feel it takes to deliver that. Like Our our motive is to create good people. And that's a really deep-seated motive from deep within, and not just from myself, from Luke, Jay, Jace, Donna, Pugs, Sue, we're really driven to help people grow it's our passion and our purpose so we spent a lot of time actually about about seven or eight years ago I realized that we needed a filter for our decision making because the building industry is a very young industry so predominantly people start as apprentices and times are changing and kids come to us and employees come to us sometimes with not a lot of support from home sometimes single parent family sometimes they're on their own at a very early age and I knew we needed a filter for our decision making. And, and we spent two years working on our values and our purpose. And that's been, if you're going to ask me what's been the game changer, it's having a clear set of operating instructions that are value driven.
1: Say a little bit more about because I totally have seen that in your approach, Anthony. And I, I get it. Plumbing is the byproduct of, you know, if, uh, if if great people make great all blacks, then great people make great plumbers as well. But you're starting very much on building those and taking care of them. So the purpose and the values, this is what stood out to me in working with you. You know, maybe I was a little bit surprised to encounter any organization that your size, I suppose, and in a very in in like a very blue collar manual work, if you like, but is taking such a focus on purpose and values. So please talk a little bit more about that and how it works. (coughs)
0: Look, well, it's very simple. We have five values. We have a purpose. So the purpose, the purpose is to create an environment for people to believe in themselves, look beyond what they thought possible, and inspire others. So what that means for us, and it's not even smart related. So none of our purpose and none of our values have anything to do with work. They're all personal. So, for instance, our purpose is to provide a place for kids and adults to come and learn in a safe space. To look beyond what they thought possible. So to start off thinking they're gonna be a plumber and like my journey, look way beyond that and the inspire others is to teach. So we want people to settle in, learn your trade, think you can do anything, and teach others how to do it as well. And then we have a, I guess we have our values that flow on from there. Where um so we, we have a we, we're we're a plumbing company, we have a big warehouse and and we have our purpose is a banner that's 10 meters long and it has our values on it and We have five banners on the wall that are five metres by five metres, so they're quite large. They're they're huge billboards, and each banner has a value on it. And a toolbox talk for us each month, we have a breakfast barbecue and a toolbox talk. It, It revolves around our values, so we'll talk about a value and how that was applied that month, and we just keep reinforcing the values. I have no doubt that strong values, strong support coupled with the right people achieve incredible outcomes, not just for EcoSmart but for them personally for their families opportunities for their children so really we don't think we should probably think about work more I'm going to be honest but the personal side's more important to us
1: yeah building those great people first i'm imagining someone who might come and join you you know you said the business needs to grow and will carry on growing and i'm imagining someone who might be thinking about coming to join you listening to this and what values do you have? What are those five values? What, I'm a reason I'm asking you this, Anthony, is thinking, okay, so if they're listening and thinking, do I want to come and be part of that business? And I'm thinking it'd be, yeah, <laughs> they could make a lot worse decisions than join you. What values are you looking to, uh, for people to have that are part of EcoSmart?
0: Yeah, so when I interview, if they're under 18, they have to interview with their parents. Because we have a high level of accountability at work uh, and really you know upholding our values and but our values cover everything so we we encourage the parents to to be part of the journey and we we actually our last apprentice that we um, that we employed was Peter now Peter's forty years old and he's just started a first year plumbing apprenticeship which is he's been a, a career chef and, and a head chef at, in city restaurants and I even and I said to Pete when he when he interviewed um, you know, you're more than welcome to have your partner sitting on the interview and he looked at me as, you know, why would I do that? But then as we got into the interview, the bi- a big part of the interview process for me is I share our values with them but also get them to read them and I-, I ask them how they interpret the values and what they mean to them. And that's been a game changer in our employment. Like I can probably, our success rates probably, like if we, if we trial somebody, there's probably a 95% chance they'll, they'll finish an apprenticeship with us. Um, and that's all off the back of an interview. So um, you know, I, I give them our values to read and our purpose. And I guess the rules of engagement are really clear before they even hit the floor. So, and then we just go through our values. We've got five values that we uphold and yeah, the rules are pretty straightforward.
1: It's amazing that you're able to pick with that level of consistency. Well, it's not just picking them, but it's creating an environment which I am sure really supports people to get to the end of their apprenticeship. Can I ask you what the values are?
0: Yeah, for sure. Like, So there's five. So I'm not going to say in order of uh, importance, but it, it is that way. So our first value is we care. And then we spent two years. So what we did, the way we did this, all 50 of us or 55 of us went to a function centre. And in the corners of the room, we had um, big whiteboards and we split into four teams. So there might have been 15 plus people in a team. And our first value is we care. So we just got each team just to, to, just to verbalise what we care meant to them. And there were words like empathy and respect and lots and lots and lots of words from all different people. There might have been 50 words for each value out of each team. And then we collated them and then we made the tagline. And, and we care, what, that, what we, we care means and what we have under we care is with empathy and respect, we support each other, whether it's at work or socially, we go out of our way to put others first and look out for them. So our first value is we care. like them to care about the trucks and utes and shovels and tools but that's not what we care means we we care about people and not just each other but people and and I I guess if if I I dive deep into that we go out of our way to put others first and look out for them it's exactly what my mum taught me with the bag of lollies so um I love it how it comes
1: together keep telling us Anthony because I think this is such good stuff I think it's wonderful that you're you've taken this approach so please carry on
0: well, this this is, um, this is works really well with young kids. It works really well with anybody, but young kids, it seems to give them a direction. So the five values are we care, do the right thing, grow as a team, we deliver and be your best. So we, we spoke about we care. So do the right thing starts off with trust as a foundation of everything we do. That's why we act with honesty and respect to make sure we only have a positive impact on others. So again, nothing to do with plumbing, nothing to do with performance, nothing to do with revenue or KPIs. It's about having a positive impact on others. So that's what that one is. The next one is Grow as a Team. So with Grow as a Team, we, again, that was a tough one because that one took a lot of massaging because there were a lot of different opinions on, on what Grow as a Team meant. But at the end of the day, we had to look at where our success came from and, and our success comes from, from mentorship. So Grow as a Team starts with, you know we, know, we know teamwork is the best way to get the job done through shared knowledge, support, and mentorship. We continually challenge one another to be the best at what we do. So what we look for there is we have a mentor program at work. So when an apprentice joins us, he's paired up with a mentor and that mentor effectively takes him on his journey through his apprenticeship. And that's why it's really really important for us to have really strong mentors because they are the ones that really teach our values even more so than what we do.
1: Mm-hmm. So is that all, have we done all five there or are there some? Uh,
0: well, we got, the, well, no, we we, 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 got, we deliver. Yeah. So we deliver is, I guess we deliver is a critically important one because again, this is very sport related for me. So we deliver effectively used to be called get it done, but the guys weren't happy with that. So it starts off what stops us delivering the catch cry for that is our can do attitude sets us apart from the rest. We find solutions and persevere with attention to detail. To deliver quality outcomes so again it's, it's it's an easy one for the boys to remember and it's it's how we get our results and then the last one finishes off with be your best so everything leads to being your best but i feel like you need to care for people you need to do the right thing you need to grow you need to deliver to be your best can't be your best if you're not if you're not hitting those call them targets call them whatever you like but everything is geared to you leaving us hopefully you don't but if you do leave us we want to make you opposition ready <laughs> ah it's good luck good luck
1: (laughs) i i love it anthony i think it's just because you're being successful you've got this wonderful team of people who are delivering and who are working as a team and and caring about each other they are living the values and as you say it's not about plumbing certainly not the first focus but hey guess what the results are amazing So you're focusing on the people and the results are are amazing. And I love this. I know you created these as a team. You said all 55 people arrived at these. So it is not just your particular worldview that is being cascaded to the business. There's um, some really nice callbacks, though, to your career as a cyclist and to sport and, you know, the values that that served you there as well so there's definitely i i can see you having no issue living these values even if you didn't you know you didn't the team designed them but no issue for you to live those Um,
0: they they they, um they offer us a solution to almost any scenario whether it be good or bad for instance like um be your best is really important because with the with the young ones for instance like they're they're struggling especially through covid that the changes we're going through So. It's really important we, we keep reinforcing this one. So be your best. Like adapt, the catch cry is adapting to change is how we grow. Through our commitment to continuous learning, we challenge ourselves. So we, we just keep pushing that to them. We, we, we just ask them to trust themselves. You know, um, just be willing to change, be willing to adapt, be willing to grow, keep learning. And I tell them when I, inter- you know, I tell them at interview, like, it's a tough place to work because you never really get left alone. Like you're always pushed to keep learning. You're always pushed to be your best. You're always pushed to look after things. You know, we've had some amazing stories. Like we had, we've had, we had some guys struggle at work financially and we've had other guys come up to us and say, look, I've got RDOs or holidays saved up. I want you to give them to so-and-so. Now, that's pretty remarkable in a workplace where people are willing to share their annual leave and their roster days off to help someone else. It's humbling. Like you, you walk away with a lump in your throat and often tears in your eyes.
1: Yeah, i just think you've created something amazing and that you could literally there's so many things you could do with your approach there's so many different areas you could get into and that the approach you have taken would create successful outcomes with you know lots of different uh different fields because that's the key is yeah. how you're treating people and developing people and challenging them to be their best and oh, it's just Absolutely wonderful.
0: The other part of that is Andy. So Donna and I spend a lot of time with them financially. The young ones can struggle and and we've had couples sit with us. So we're talking about husband and wives and we've talked about boyfriend, girlfriend, where they will sit with Donna and I and we'll go through their P&Ls and we'll sort out their loans. And, and we, we have a late day every day at work. So my late day is on Wednesday. So I'll lock up on a Wednesday. And it's not that I'm late there because I have to lock up because you don't trust anybody. It's just so that you know, if anybody comes back late, there's someone there to thank them and just see them off. I don't want someone coming back to, to a dark, empty warehouse. But Wednesday night's my late night, and I will have someone with me every Wednesday, if not two. And And the young ones will will, will do budgeting, so we'll teach them how to budget. It's much more than plumbing. Oh, plumbing's the least of their worries. They're going to learn how to plumb terrifically, but it's, it's how to make the most of that skill and having all their ducks in a row throughout the rest of their life that's the
1: important one. You effortlessly drop leadership gems into the conversation without even thinking about it, Anthony. I mean, you don't want someone coming back to an empty warehouse. You want someone to be there at the end of the day to thank him. You're the boss. You're the owner of this business. And you're doing that on Wednesdays. That's your day for making sure that they get thanked at the end of the day. That's just one of so many wonderful leadership moments you've uh, described in this conversation. The fact that you're caring about these youngsters and giving them the financial guidance that, let's face it, none of us come out of school with because for some reason it's, it's, it's there's no time for it is incredible. And you have, you've said a number of times and I completely understand it and I agree that plumbing is not the focus. Plumbing is a wonderful outcome. It's the side effect of what happens when you do this. But also I know you really value... Being good at plumbing, because the conversations we've had with some of the team members about how good they are and no one can fit a boiler as efficiently as some of your team, those sort of comments that are made. So that idea of going back to when you were in your early 20s running out of the house to write in your diary that you'd done a personal best on fitting a toilet, that culture of being the best at the job that you're doing and taking the plumbing seriously and getting incrementally better at it and then sharing those skills and making sure that the youngsters can learn from the best in the business that's still very much a part of what you're doing as well isn't it
0: oh without a doubt look plumbing is is um plumbing is just an extension of sport for us like we're not here to be second best and as much as i try and temper my competitiveness I I, I I don't hide the fact that I, I want to be the best by a long shot. And actually, that's where COVID has forced us to, to think outside the square. We've spent probably 18 months creating a training plan that we're working with, with a US company that's building the dashboard. So we'll have a training plan for our employees that covers every task they do. It'll, it'll be a digital platform. Um, and there'll be dashboards. It'll be an incredible experience for them where there'll be nothing, no stone left unturned in their training. And it, it'll be revolutionary. I know nobody's doing it because I, I know the trade schools like Victoria University and, and the Gordon Institute who have seen the training plan that I've come up with in, um, in draft form, they've shaken their heads and, and said it'll make the official trade school learning um, look like art class compared to what we're going to do. So we're, we're really going all out. All our background work is no more than training for us. You know, we're just, we just head down, ass up. Again, going back to what we know, and that's doing more than the others and better than the others in the background so that the um, the results look amazing without anybody really knowing why.
1: You've shared very openly, Anthony, what I believe is the differentiator for your business, the, the mindset you have, the way you look at the people in it. Are you nervous about your competitors listening to this?
0: No, not at all. Actually, no, no, not one bit. I'm happy to share anything. I'm just confident that you're not going to have the firepower to consistently carry out what's required. Look, we all know where a gym is. We probably drive past three or four gyms on the way to work each day. But how many people go to the gym? And it's how I view business. Like, I'm happy to share everything we do, but I'm confident there's not going to be many people that's going to carry it out. It's okay to have the systems, but you've got to execute them as well.
1: It's all in the execution, the consistent execution. I I completely agree. It was a trick question. I wasn't expecting you to be. (laughs) I don't think you've got anything to worry about. But I do wish, Anthony, that more young people, the more young people can come under your wing, you know, because you're helping so much with their whole lives and helping them to become their best selves. I just... What are you know, the more people that you you, the more your business can grow, the more people can benefit from the leadership that you and your team provide and the culture that you have, the environment, that safe space where there's still challenge and there's accountability and there's an expectation that they're like as if they were in a sports team that you are going to push yourself here and you are going to become the best. Today, it happens to be plumbing. And we're going to be the best at that. I just think, yeah, it's just such a wonderful place for people to have the opportunity to come and work. Yeah. Uh, be part
0: we, of that. we use a terminology that um, we bash them with a feather, so we we continually we continually <laughs> beat the crap out of them with a feather. So and and that's so we we're gently tapping them and nudging them along all the time without too much physical impact. But we we bash them with a feather. We wouldn't be complete or satisfied unless. They reach their potential. Everybody has a different potential, but as long as you give yourself every chance to reach it, we're good with that. That's enough for us.
1: Yeah. How big could the business get? How big would you like it to get? And I only say that in terms of how many people do you think you could be benefiting? How many people could be enjoying yeah, well, that environment? How big a school and could I, I be? Guess,
0: Yeah. Well, we have, we have our own trade school upstairs, so we have a we have a. Um, a trade we have a classroom upstairs where it's like a a a mini a mini trade school we do want to grow and we want to grow for for a few reasons but the biggest reason is we have such good people that if we don't provide opportunity for we wouldn't be fulfilling our obligation and our commitment to them but we would also lose them and we and we know that so we have some amazing people people that inspire me through their journeys and how tough they've had to do it to get to where they are, that they actually, you know, they, they, I walk out, you know, I get to work every morning at six o'clock and I don't need to be there at that time, but I do it because I want to walk around and, and, and greet everybody and say hello to everybody. And, and that fills my tank. I, I know how hard some people have had to work to get to where they have the, the journeys they've had in life, the turbulence they have had to endure and to see them, come out the other end where they are with families and great dads and the sacrifices they've made are are starting to pay off and it's just incredible I almost feel embarrassed that i get this outcome out of uh out of having other having other people work for us
1: no it's uh it's well deserved and completely understandable so anthony thank you so much for for sharing everything that you have is there anything i haven't asked you that i should have done
0: no, not really. Probably one thing we've learned through Alan and and yourself, and there's so much online learning through your your, your podcast, for instance, Andy. There's so much learning to be had from other people's experiences that I, I saw my kids do a lot of online schooling through COVID, and and the information that's out there through podcasts and and external learning via media like you're doing now, it's incredible. It's it, it's it's more valuable than a university experience. So so much learning to be had that's at our disposal that I was just never made aware of.
1: Yeah, and again, it's about the application, like you said. So there are thousands of books out there, millions of books out there, and yet there's still still room for people like me to help people with the execution, make the connection between what's written in the book and what does that mean for you on a daily basis? What are you going to do? Yeah. And I, I love to meet and, and- yeah.
0: Yeah, and I can honestly say, Andy, if, you, if you're going to ask us for another pivotal change in the business, I think working through the seven habits, because we all talk about it at work and it's made us think differently, even personally. Actually, well, there you go. Probably the biggest compliment I can give working um, through the workshops is one of my kids said, geez, Dad, I wish you did this course 30 years ago before you had us. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, they, so I can see a direct shift in, in our family's attitude because, you know, we've, we've worked through this as a family, which is absolutely the most amazing experience. It's almost like travelling through Europe with your family, um, this book, this journey, because it's learning. And I can see a shift in attitudes in other family members, and I know they can within
1: mine. Yeah, no, it's been wonderful to watch you uh, getting to grips with it and using the language and spreading it throughout the business and and families as well. Those are some of my favorite parts when you hear about people taking this home and trying it out on their uh, on their family members. It's uh, good. There was one story you mentioned. You told me a story about someone who was close to being fired and they, do you remember that story? Is I, that do. One, I do. I, I know. I, I, do I, do I, they I, know? that they were close to being fired, and are they going to guess who they are if you tell the story? Would that be a problem?
0: Oh, he knows because I told him. Um, <laughs> I, and, I, and, I won't, and I won't mention his name, but I, I, I can probably start with saying that when I interviewed him, he'd, he'd spent two years at a, at a previous employer, and the level he was at was probably not where we were hoping someone at, at, at that two-year mark would be. Language was a barrier and use the phone for some translation services. But I could just see some goodness in him. And I don't know why. I do know why. Because I ask a lot of questions I shouldn't in an interview. And and my kids keep telling me that I'm going to end up getting in trouble for it. But I'm I'm really interested to know people's stories and their families and what their brothers and sisters do and what their parents do. And, and I want to – and I'm interested to know that because I'm just interested. And I, I – You're not allowed to ask so many questions in an interview, but my comeback to that is, well, how can I treat somebody and how can I provide for somebody to the best of my ability if I don't know them? So I ask questions that probably textbook are not allowed. So this person was not performing through no fault of his own, but he would bring in a bag of lollies, a big, big bag of lollies. We're talking supermarket bag full of lollies because his partner worked at a confectionery place that was allowed to take um, the leftovers, so to speak, and he would share them out all the time. And he has a thick accent because English is not the first language. It's only young, only early, early twenties, and he wasn't—he just wasn't at the level we needed. And I thought, I, I just don't think we can have him here. And I, I was out there that morning, and I saw, I saw him walking around like he usually does on a, on, on whatever day of the week it might have been—a Friday—with the big bag of lollies, and he's sharing them out to everybody. And he came into the office and walked through the office and shared him out through the office. And I said to him, you were gone today. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, this was going to be your last day. But after what I saw today, you will be the last person standing. And he is now one of our superheroes. He is an unbelievable superstar. He's not only a magnificent person, he lives our values like no other. He's so good to his apprentices. He's such a good mentor. He's just, he's amazing. He's, but but, but I, and I shouldn't isolate that story because we've got amazing everywhere. Like some of the guys have had such a tough start to life and yet they just come up with this amazingness every day and what they're able to deliver and, and what they're able to endure. So, you know, it, it's hard to it's hard to distinguish. And you're working yeah. with one of them that, that that's had an amazing journey.
1: Yeah, no, it's the reason I, you've got so many good stories and so many good uh, examples of people being superstars, Anthony. What I like about that story is it's it's a bit corny, but it's obvious the way it links to you giving out lollies at the bus stop when you were four years old and then you being about to fire this guy because he just wasn't up to scratch. But then seeing him giving out the lollies and thinking, I can't do this, you, we're going to make this work, and then him turning into a superstar. It's just, call me old-fashioned, but I love
0: it. And But you know what? All our superstars have come from challenging backgrounds. So the learning for us is if you have the right person and you feel they are, you know, they are good from within. You just got to keep going till um till they till they back themselves. And that's where our purpose to provide an environment for people to believe in themselves kicks in. So that's why that that's why the purpose says that, because we know it works. Sometimes we have to wait three months, sometimes we have to wait three years. Sometimes we have to wait more. But the right
1: person always delivers. Yeah. So you back them until they back themselves. You have to.
0: Otherwise we have to throw our purpose out. And I guess my parting message is. Just be kind. Like I spoke for half an hour to Salvation Army breakfast and I spent a fair bit of time with people on the street and I'm not trying to fix the world. I'm just trying to make their day a little bit brighter. Like every time you spend time with someone like that, you just you, you give them a blink of dignity and the more blinks of dignity they've got, again, back to our purpose, create an environment for people to believe in themselves. And I just want people to be kind. If we all become a little bit more kind, oh, the world going to be amazing.
1: Oh Anthony, this has been an absolutely huge pleasure, as I knew it would be. I think you're extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, and I think you're building a wonderful, wonderful business, which is a great environment for people to 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 grow and to, oh, I just love it. so thank you so much for joining me and sharing your career story today thank, thank you Thank
0: you It's been a pleasure.
1: You've been listening to Career View Mirror with me, Andy Follows. I hope you found some helpful points to reflect on in Anthony's story that can help you with your own career journey or that of those you lead, parent or mentor. You are unique. And during my conversation with Anthony, you'll have picked up on topics that resonate with you. A few things I noticed were the level of commitment required to succeed in competitive sport and how Anthony brought that same level of commitment to his work. The early evidence of his entrepreneurial character when at 23 years old he bought a plot of commercial land with the foresight that a lot of people would be passing by that site in time. He's now leading a purpose-driven business with a great team that focuses on people first and plumbing second and as a result delivers plumbing outcomes that are second to none. EcoSmart could be a poster child for the concept of fulfilling performance that I've covered in some depth in recent episodes. The holistic approach that he and the team take to taking care of all team members, helping them sort out their home lives so they can focus on becoming their best selves. You can contact Anthony via email, anthony at ecosmartgroup.com.au, and we'll put a link in the show notes to this episode. We publish these episodes to celebrate my guest careers, listen to their stories and learn from their experiences. And I'm genuinely interested in what resonated with you. Thank you to all of you for sharing your feedback. Thanks also to Hannah and Julia, who is part of the Career View Mirror team here at Aquiline, worked so hard to deliver these episodes to you. And remember, folks, if you know people who would benefit from hearing these stories, please show them how to find us. Thanks for listening.